hey, if you can find the book of Haggai, uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. It's actually the third to last book in the Old Testament. Not super hard to get there. Uh, the, the word of the day is, is the word Lord. The word Lord is mentioned 14 times in the book of Haggai. And uh, that is our word of the day, just to keep, kind of keep an, an eye out for it. Haggai ministered among the Jews who had uh, returned back to, uh, to Judea after 70 years of captivity. So they'd been captive for 70 years in, in Babylon. He's one of three prophets, so it'd be him, Zechariah, and Malachi that spoke to the people after they had returned. The rest of the prophets either spoke before they went into captivity, they were warning them, or they spoke to them while they were in captivity. And then there's three that spoke to them after they came out of captivity. So history-wise, the Persian ruler Cyrus the Great captured Babylon in 539. And then in 538 BC, he let them go, commissioned them, permitted them to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. You can, if, you, if you're ever interested in that, you can read in the book of Ezra where a lot of that is. So you can see how uh, they were sent back in Ezra chapters 1 and 2. Uh, and then in chapters 3 and 4, you can see that when they arrived from captivity, they began to rebuild. And so the first thing that they did was begin to rebuild the temple. Uh, the house of God and so they worked on that together they've actually laid the foundations and then because of uh, the surrounding nations because of intimidation and attacks against them uh, they quit they quit building the house of God um, they got the foundations laid they got it started and then the temple construction stopped and you can see that in Ezra chapter 4 and so Haggai comes around 16 years later so 16 years after they had stopped working God raises up Haggai, and he comes in and begins to speak to them and, uh, because they had not yet completed. So let's, we're actually going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 1 of Haggai. If you have my exact Bible, you'd be on page 974, which I doubt that you do. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, it's never good when God says these people instead of saying my people. He says these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. And thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for, behold, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and hills and on the grain and on the new wine and the oil and what, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors." Really, really, really important passage of Scripture, really clear. I mean, we could basically read it. 
we all understand it and understand really anything that I'm going to say ahead of time this morning. Uh, but basically, in these, in these first 11 verses, there's three things. God, God points out the sin of them. He points out the result of their sin. And he points out uh, a call to repentance. So in verse 2, we see that God says, The time has, you say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The people had said, hey, we'll get to it later. It started off by intimidation uh, by other nations that they quit building. And then it got to the point where they just said, hey, it's not time. You know, there's other things that are bigger priorities. There's things that are higher on my list, things I got to get to today. I'll get to this building the house of the Lord thing later. And they felt like it just wasn't, it just wasn't the right time for them. And then God says in verse 4 to them, is it time for yourselves then to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in rules, ruins? So we see this conflict. We see God saying, hey, why, are you, why have you stopped building my house? Why have you said, hey, it's just not time? And why are you building these luxury homes for yourselves? Why have you, why have you made this your priority? He never says in here, don't build your own house. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, don't put wood paneling in your house. You and I would probably say that today, right? keep the wood paneling out. He doesn't say that, but what he does say is, hey, why are your priorities this way? Why, why are your priorities such that it's time just to build God's house, or it's time to build my house? God's house isn't really important right now. That's what God is laying out as the sin that they've committed. And then he says, we saw it real clear in verse 6, the result of that sin. He says, you've sown much and you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. So we see the sin, and then we see the result. Really fascinating. We have, a, we have people that are hardworking people, and it just never seems to be enough. And I don't think that that's just because they're, they're insatiable. Uh, that could be the case. But it's really because there's, there's these, the bags, this uh, metaphorical bag that, that they put in of everything in, and it just keeps draining out. It's a people that probably are surprised at the end of the day. Hey, I did what I thought I was supposed to do. I had my plan. I executed it. I worked real hard. And man, I just don't have enough. It's just not working. So there's a sin, and then there's the result of the sin. And then there's the call to repentance in verse 7. It's the second time he says it in verse 7. He says, consider your ways. That is a really good exercise. To take time and just really just take a look. Take a look at our lives. And he tells them, take a look at your life and recognize what's going on. And what was going on was the discipline of God. God was disciplining them. And so he says to them, consider your ways. Stop and just take a look. And so he's calling them to repentance. That's what we're going to take a couple minutes and look at. There's a quote that I, that I put up here. True Christian repentance involves a heartfelt conviction of sin, a contrition over the offense to God, a turning away from the sinful way of life, and a turning towards a God-honoring way of life by Sam Storms. I don't know if you've thought about repentance lately, what repentance might mean. Uh, I think a lot of times you and I would have a conversation with God that would be something like, God, I'm really sorry. God, forgive me my sins, which is a beautiful prayer. Uh, nothing wrong with that at all. God, I'm sorry. Uh, that's not really what repentance is. That's part of repentance. Repentance is having that contrition of my sin, that sorrow of my sin, which is really, really important. If that ever comes into your heart, man, let, let, that, let that take its place. 
Not, con not condemnation, not to condemn you, but just this sadness of our own sin for the way that it's, that it's affected my relationship with God, the way it's affected my relationship with my family, the way it's affected my relationship with you, the way it's hurt me. Uh, just a sadness over sin, but that's not all that there is. If you could put the quote back up just for a second, please. It's, it's a contrition over the offense to God, but it's also a turning away from the sinful way of life and a turning towards a God-honoring way of life. So there's this turning away and a turning towards. I think, if, you know, if you know 12-step philosophy, it's not just turning away, it's turning towards. It's letting go of stuff that, that shouldn't be in my life, and it's turning towards. I think every time that you and I hear a message from God, every time that we have devotions, we should ask those two questions. What is it that I'm supposed to stop doing, and what is it that I'm supposed to start doing? Does that sound like pretty good questions to ask? What is it that I should stop doing, and what is it that I should start doing? Um, both of those are really important, stopping and, and starting. So what is it that they're turning from? Verse 9. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. God's asking them to turn from that, from busying themselves with their own house, with their own life, while the house of God lies in ruins. What, what does it look like today? That's a really hard question. Uh, what does it look like today if the house of God lies in ruins? You know, we can kind of picture probably back then, you know, what it might look like. But today, you know, hey, it doesn't look like ruins. You know, we've got everything set up. We've got our chairs. We've got our, our hanging things up in the sky. Uh, we've got everything that we, that we need, right? Uh, what does it look like to be in ruins? What it, I think what it means is that when the, when the building of the house of God, building what God wants to build, and we'll take a look at that here in a minute, when that isn't the priority that it needs to be. It isn't the only priority that should ha I should have in my life, but it's the top one. It's the top priority, is to build what God wants to build. I think a lot of um, people make the mistake or they assume a Christian, man, I just leave everything behind and I only pursue God. That's not really what God's asking us to do. He's asking me to seek him first, to pursue him first. It's not the only thing that I seek in my life, right? But it's what I seek first. So, so you, you have this picture of, of that. He says, God told them, that building the house of God was top priority. To us, he says, to seek first the kingdom of God. You can see that parallel, right? God told them that all their efforts to build their houses were futile because they were not obeying him. I don't know if that rings a bell for you in New Testament scripture. I actually just want to read to you a couple passages out of, out of the book of Matthew. I don't have them on the, on the screen, but Matthew chapter 7 Jesus says at the end of the Sermon of the Mount, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So we've got two things going on. We've got hearing what God is saying, hearing God's word, and doing it, obeying God's word, and building my house. I think God cares enough about building my house and your house that he wants us to build it right. And he wants us to build it on a solid foundation. So he, he contrasts two houses here. So if I hear his word and I do his word, then I'm a wise man who's building my house on the rock. He says, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. 
And then he says, now the second house, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Do you see the parallel with what we're talking about? Uh, it's, this, this is now he's saying, hey, if you hear my words, that could be through, through scripture reading at home. It could be through listening to music that proclaims God's word. It could be obviously here listening to a sermon. Just different ways that we hear God's word. If I hear those words and I don't do them, I don't obey. Obey is that four-letter word that's a tough one to say, you know, around Christians today. It shouldn't be because uh, we think, oh, my gosh, that's, that's law. I got I to gotta stay away from this obeying thing, which is a little bit silly, right? Um, but if I hear the word and I don't obey, he says, I'm building my house, but I'm building it on sand. And then when things come against it, it falls down. I remember probably the toughest trial that, that my family's ever gone through was, I don't even know how long ago, eight, nine years ago, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer and very, very aggressive uh, breast cancer. And we went through this time of uh, three or four different surgeries, 16 uh, chemotherapy treatments, just a long, long, really, really, really hard time. My kids, I think my son was probably a freshman in college. My daughter was a freshman in high school. Uh, just a tough time. Some of you guys have gone through that personally, and most of you know somebody that's gone through that. And I, re and I remember going through that time in just strange peace, uh, times of joy, where we were joyful for different things. You know, you wouldn't think you'd be joyful going through that, coming out of a chemo session, but, but the joy because it was caught when it was, joy that it was treatable, uh, joy that we had brothers and sisters walking with us, joy that we felt the presence of God, all those things. And then I remember praying and reading scripture one day, and I felt that God brought me to this passage. And he said, David, because you, you guys have tried to obey me, you've been able to weather this storm. Your house hasn't fallen apart with this storm. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. What an incredible blessing from God. Uh, just to hear his word, obey, not obey perfectly by any stretch of the imagination, but just, hey man, my heart, my heart wants to obey the Lord. You know, I wanna, I wanna hear God's word. I wanna know what he's saying. I don't wanna just glaze over and roll my eyes back. Oh, I've heard this a million times. I, I'm kinda hungry. I wanna know what God is saying and obey God. And then build my house. But build it on a rock. Build it on a solid foundation and not build it on sand. So what do they turn into in verse eight? He says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord in verse 8. So they're turning away from, from their bad priorities and they're turning to this. I love it. It says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. I mean, that's what repentance is. If you could have a picture of repentance, picture these people who've been rebuked by God and now all of a sudden he's saying, now go do something about it. Go, 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 go up this hill, climb up this hill, get some wood, build this house, do this thing that he's telling you to do. That's why we said, hey, what maybe a good question is, what should I stop doing and what should I start doing after I hear the word of God? 
Uh, if, you've been a, if you've been a Christian your whole life, if you're a brand new Christian, that's a question to ask. If you're a person that doesn't have a relationship with God, maybe you're just checking it out, or maybe you've already made up your mind that, hey, this just isn't for me, then, then God would say to you, consider your ways. Take a look at your life. Take a look at those, those, those uh, containers that are broken and that just don't hold what you want to hold. Look at this endless running on the treadmill without ever figuring or sensing that you arrive anyplace. Look at these things. So repentance isn't just feeling sorry. Though feeling sorry is incredibly important. Sometimes we look for just one thing to do. Okay, okay, I won't feel sorry anymore. No more feeling sorry, I'm just going to go do. No, I mean, it's, it's this contrition. It's this brokenness of heart. It's a sorrow in my heart for sin. And then it's turning away and turning towards. And he, and he goes on to say in that verse, he goes on to say that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. So build a house that God wants, God's way, so that God takes pleasure in it. I don't know if you, if you look at your life that way. I don't know if you look at, at the dwelling that way. God, are you pleased? What is it that, that you're calling us to do so that you're pleased, so that you're happy about what we're building uh, together and what we're building in our own homes, God? Uh, does this please you? Does this glorify you? Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's one of the many verses in the New Testament that is written to a group of people and not just to an individual. You and I have read that most of our lives thinking, okay, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a new uh, creation in Christ, which I am, but I'm his workmanship. I'm created in Christ Jesus for good works. But the word there, it says we. So we are. And then it goes on in Ephesians 2, verse 22, to say, in him you also are being built together into what? A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are we are His workmanship. The Greek word is poema. It's the idea of that we're His His uh, His masterpiece. We're His His poetry. We're His masterpiece. But we together. Does He have a plan for my life personally? Yes. But He has a plan for my life interwoven with your life. And that's something personally that I'm super excited about. I've, I've been here for a, about two months with you guys. And it's exciting that God's allowed me to, to be a part of what he's doing in your life and to, to, for our lives to be interwoven together. That's exciting. But he says, we are his workmanship. What, what is it that, that he's doing? What does it look like for us to be the, the house of God? When we talk about in the New Testament, building the house of God, what does it look like for us to, to, to be together and to build the house of God? I... I create a little graphic that's our vision and our mission uh, for the church is to reach tens of thousands of people in this area who are disconnected and help make them disciples. How many of you have heard that at some point? I've been here two months. I've heard it a bunch, which is really, really good, right? I'm, ex I'm happy about that. But to reach tens of thousands of people who are disconnected to be disciples. And then how do we build the house of God? Well, first of all, it's gathering around God's word and prayer daily in our own house and we have tools that we can help you with that if that's not something that you're doing is gathering around God's word daily whether it be in your family devotions or in your personal devotions we can help you with that I'd love to have a conversation with you about that 
It's one of the greatest parts of my life is having devotions at home. And then second of all, to meet weekly, so daily in our own house, weekly in God's house, and bi-weekly in a friend's house, which we call our G2 groups. Why, how does that make a difference? Well, we're, we're, we're growing together. We're gathering together, we're growing together, we're a part of this vision to reach tens of thousands of people, and then going, which is living what Jesus is saying to us, which we've, we've talked about this morning, hearing his word and then doing his word. Uh, going where we live, where we work, where we worship, and where we play. So this is the vision that, that God's given this church. Church is going to have a five-year anniversary coming up in September. This is what the church is about. This is what the church feels called to. If, you, if you're feeling this sensing and longing, man, I love the church. I'd like to be more a part of it. This is, this is what it looks like. And if that doesn't make sense, I get it. But let's have a conversation about that. Let's have a conversation about what it means uh, to build together the house of God. I don't want to be one of the people where God says, hey, you're only building your own house and you're not, you're not working at all for the house of God. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be the person either where I'm only working in the house of God and then my home is in shambles. That's not what he's saying. He's saying build your house, but build your house right. Build your house so that it's on a rock, so that it's on a firm foundation, so that it can weather the storms of life. Do you think there's going to be more storms in life or do you think we've already hit them all? I mean, crazy, right? I mean, and in literal physical storms, they're saying thanks to all this heat that we're having, the Gulf is getting really hurricane ready, getting really nice and warm. Uh, sorry for the bad news. Uh, but but so, so build your house. Yes, do that. Build your house, but build it right by hearing what God's saying, by obeying what God's saying, by taking what God's saying to where I live and to where I work, where I worship and where I play. That's what it looks like to build the house of God together. Every church is called to reach people around them. Every church is surrounded with people that are broken. We realize that. Every church is full. You know, I think we know that. Every church is full of people that are broken. I mean, I stand here as broken number one. Just live a life that's broken, but, but empowered by God, healed on a daily basis by God, restored by God, loved by God's people, loved by God's, uh, by my own family. So then let's, let's now look at their response in Haggai. I lost my place, which isn't good. It's hard to get back to Verse 12, let's read verse 12 through verse 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. That is incredibly rare in any of the prophets. If you read through the prophets, to find a group of people that actually obeyed is incredibly rare. That's what, what's one of the things that makes the book of Haggai so unique, is that the people listen to God. It's incredible. Uh, so they obeyed the voice of the Lord and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. That's incredible. And then verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, 
and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So we have a group of people that heard God's voice and they listened to God's voice and they did what God was calling them to do. When it mentions here the fear of the Lord, let me just add that that means a deep respect, a reverence and awe for God's power and authority. Rather than making somebody afraid of God, it makes somebody fall more in love with God. That's what the fear of the Lord really means. So it says they obeyed him and they feared him. And so God responds then, so then that, that's their repentance. We get to see their repentance. And then God responds with two things. He says, I'm with you. And then he begins to stir up their hearts. The statement, I'm with you, is one of the, the greatest statements of the gospel that you'll see in all the Bible. I don't know if you see that. I don't know if that jumps off the page at you. But God had just rebuked them. They'd spent 16 years wandering from what God had wanted them to do. Do you see that? 16 years. They're stuck in a bad place for 16 years. Stuck in disobedience for 16 years. They repent. They obey God. And God immediately says, okay, I'm going to be with you. The presence of God is a miracle. The presence of God in our life is an absolute, incredible, mind-bending miracle that God would dwell among us, that God would dwell in me, that he would dwell in us as a group, that he would dwell in our families. It's an absolute miracle of God. And, and we see that God is quick to forgive. One of the things that you'll see in Scripture is that you'll see him calling out sin and calling out sin, and, and people delay and delay and delay and delay and delay and finally respond and then God quickly he forgives them it's an important area that you see in God that you see this in his character how quick he is to forgive not to be taken for granted at all but to understand that he's a God who wants relationship with us he's a God who wants to dwell with us and he's willing to forgive us and I think when you think about the forgiveness of God you can think about CPR you can think about God coming in an emergency, and CPR is he forgives us because of his character, he forgives us because of his promise, and he forgives us because of his reputation. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, it said, the Lord passed before him, Moses, and he proclaimed, look at what he says here, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and the transgression and sin. We're going to read that together again in just a second. But this is right after. Does anybody know what, what place this is in the Bible? This is immediately right after they built the golden calf. So Moses goes up on the mountain. He's up there on the mountain for a while. Um, people kind of freak out and say Moses isn't coming back. So they, they melt down all the gold that they got out of Egypt when they came out of Egypt. And they... they built they molded this golden calf and they said behold israel this is your god this is the one who brought you out of egypt i mean it was such an atrocious sin god was so angry at them that he said he's never going to walk with them again he basically written them off moses intercedes as moses is interceding this is something that i just read in my devotions this week i'm just studying this on my own at home and as and Moses intercedes for him, which is an incredible prayer, and then he says, God, show me your glory. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is like his essence. This is, God, show me who you are. Show me who you are. I've heard what everybody else says about you. I've got my own imaginations. This is who, who he is. Can we put that at the beginning? The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. 
This is the glory of God. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's keeping steadfast love for thousands. He's forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin. And I think that's really important today. Uh, if you've been written off, man, maybe you've been written off by Christians. Maybe you've been written off by your own family. Maybe you've been written off by, at work. I don't know. Maybe you've written yourself off. Maybe you've convinced yourself that you're unforgivable. And, and people say, oh, well, that's not true. I'll tell you, there's people that are in that place. And I've been in that place where I felt absolutely the exception. Do you ever feel that in church? Like, hey, this, this is awesome. God's awesome. Uh, Trace singing, I'm a child of God. And you're feeling like you're the outlier, that you're the exception. That's what it is to be disconnected with God, is to be disconnected with this knowledge of who he is, that he's a God full of mercy. He's a God that, that's full of grace. He's a God that forgives. He forgives. God forgives. And if you, what I do sometimes, I look in the Bible, I try and find somebody in the Bible that's as wacky as I am. I try and find somebody that's as screwed up as I've been in my life. And I look at them and I see, man, look at how God forgave them. These people had just done the golden calf thing. I, mean, I don't know how many of you have done that. You've gotten so frustrated you just build a cow out in your backyard. I mean, that's not real, real common, right? But these guys, they, they totally abandoned God. They did exactly what he said not to do, and then he forgave them. He forgave them in a big way. So that's his character. That's who he is. And then his, his promise, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful, and he's just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This verse is really important because it's right before another verse. And the verse that's there says, if you say that you have no sin, you make God a liar. Listen to me. The Bible doesn't make a big deal out of somebody that says I'm a sinner. The Bible makes a big deal out of somebody that says I'm not. Do you understand that? What makes God angry is not when I say I'm a sinner. What, God, what makes God angry is when I say I'm not. Because it makes him out to be a liar. And because what happens is the world sees us, disconnected people see us, people that don't have a relationship with God see us, and they see us being Mr. Holier Than Thou, Mr. Super Righteous, and they realize it's a joke. Because they hear the fights at night. They see the kicking of the dog in the backyard. No, I'm joking. That might be a good thing to do. I don't know your dog. Uh, but, you know, we put ourselves up as, hey, I'm, I'm this really spiritual person. I'm better than you. And people just see right through it and say, man, that's a joke. What are you talking about? So God says, if you say you have no sin, you make him out to be a liar. The problem with Christians is not saying I'm not a sinner. The, the, the problem with Christians is not saying I'm a sinner. It's saying I'm not a sinner. And the problem with somebody being disconnected from God is not saying I'm a sinner. should never be afraid to say that. Because that's the beginning of having a relationship restored with God. When Israel repented, God said, okay, I'm with you. I mean, you could be one step away this morning from having a, a relationship restored with God just through repentance. I mean, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is no matter what I've done, when I repent, God promises to be with me. So we see his character, we see his promise, and then his reputation in Isaiah 43, 25. He says, I'm he who blots out your transgressions 
for my own sake. And I will, rem I will not remember your sins. There's some phrases there, guys. Look at that one more time. I mean, just let, you, let your heart see this. He blots out your transgression for his own sake. He says he'll remember no more your sins. I mean, who wouldn't want to follow a God like that? Why would you not want to follow a God who will blot out, completely erase and remove your sin and remember it no more? Now, the other part of this verse is that he says he does it for his own sake. He does it for his reputation. He wants to be known by your neighbor as the God who forgives you. Do you hear that? He wants to be known as the God who forgives you. Which means my, my neighbors see both sides. They see my broken side, and then they see my side as a child of God, redeemed by the grace and the mercy of God. I used to run from that. I've been a Christian for, for a little over 30 years. I became a Christian uh, in high school. I'm trying to think if I'm going to say something that's going to give out my age, so I'm trying to be careful here. Sorry, I stopped to do some math there. Uh, but I became a Christian in high school, and, I, and as a Christian today, now I don't even know what I was saying. My math got in my brain. I don't know what I was going to say. Uh, oh, I ran for years from this thing that as a Christian, I'm still a sinner. I ran from that. I hid from that. I felt like everybody around me was better. I felt like I was the odd man out. I felt like I was the, the black sheep in the family of, of Christians. And I've gotten really now content to go before God and say, God, I'm, I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I am who I am. And then to, to, to know that God forgives me, to know that I'm not unforgivable. And, and you might not believe that about me. You might not believe that about others. But that might be your conviction about you. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear from me that God will meet you where you're at this morning. And God will forgive you this morning. What do I need to do? I need to be sorrowful about my sin. I need to turn away from my sin. So I would say a prayer this morning and say, God, Lord, I don't want to go back to that thing. And then I turn towards what he wants me to do. I turn towards what he wants me to be. You know, as a father, as a husband, I'm going, man, Lord, I want to build my house right. I want to build my house right, God. I want to build my house out of obedience to you. So CPR, his character, his promise, his reputation, his presence, he says he promises us his presence. Let me say something to Christians. His presence is the high point of Christianity. It's, it's the apex. It's what it's all about. Eternity is, is, is eternity with God, in the presence of God forever and ever, for millions upon millions upon millions of years. The highlight of a Christian's life today is, is the presence of God. And I fear that a lot of Christians don't, don't understand that. I feel like a lot of Christians are frustrated and they say, man, this thing doesn't work. And some of it is because we haven't learned about God's saying, I'm, I'll be with you, that, that it's his presence. You have to understand that as, as Christians, when, when God saw the, the brokenness of the world, he gave himself as the solution. He gave himself. When I'm going through hard times, what the first thing God wants to give me is himself, his presence. I, I have a couple quotes that I thought were good. One by J.I. Packer. It says, knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill a man's heart. 
Isn't that incredible? What is it about God that thrills your heart? What is it about God that, that moves you, that, that, get, that you get excited about, that thrills you? And then C.S. Lewis says, God can't give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. God can't give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. Oh, to, to know the, the presence of God. When, when, when Jesus spoke basically his last message or his almost last message in Matthew 28, which is the Great Commission to go into all the world to make disciples of all nations, he finished that by saying, and I'm going to be with you that whole time. His presence is the apex of what it means to be a Christian. And how we learn that is by, by gathering around God's word on a daily basis at home, on a weekly basis with the, with the family of God, on a bi-weekly basis or bi-monthly basis uh, with friends. We learn about his presence. I'm going to finish with this, uh, the second part of, of verse 14. It says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. And then he goes on to say, and he stirred up the spirit of the remnant of the people. God putting in us the desire to do his work is a great part of the gospel. Please understand that Christianity is not God barking orders. Christianity is not God just saying, go do this. Here's the good news. Do you want to hear good news this morning? God puts in us the desire to go and do good things for him. He's the one who puts that in me. He doesn't just say, go and, and go gather and go do your thing. He puts the desire in you. He stirs you up to go and do that. So if, if you haven't felt that stirring, you don't have to feel isolated or God's not speaking to me. That's one of the things that we begin to repent in our lives and we begin to turn away from and we turn toward. And then God takes our heart and he stirs our heart. That's, that's the gospel. That's the good news. Man, I, I would be too worn out after being a Christian for 30 years. A lot of you guys have been Christians for, for 10 years, 50 years. I'd be completely worn out if it was all up to me. But God gives me the strength. God puts in me the desire. If that seems foreign to you, then that would be a great place to pray. That would be a great thing to start with, is to say, God, what does that mean? God, that seems foreign to me. So it's not like I'm just sitting around with my arms crossed waiting for God to bark orders at me and then, man, I hope I've got the strength to do it. It's I'm repenting from not putting as a priority to build the house of God and then God begins to stir my heart. That means a couple things to me. Number one is it means that any time ever that I have a desire to serve God in any capacity, that that's a gift from him. He's given me that desire. That's not, that's, not, that's not just me. I don't have a bent just towards doing good things. Not at all. God gives me that desire. God puts that in me. And second of all, so that means, first of all, any good thing that I ever do, God gave me the desire to do that. And second of all, it means um, that if I don't have a desire, he can put that in me. Look at this verse from Philippians chapter 2, 13. It says, it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his purpose. Do you see the two things? God works in us to will, to give me the will, to give me the desire 
and to act. I mean, that's the gospel, guys. Is, is there work to be done? Yes. Is there work to be done? Yes. Are there people that don't have a relationship with God? Yes. Are there people that are offended by the church and hurt by the church and wounded by the church? Yes. Are there people that are wounded by their, their upbringing and with their families? Yes. Are we called to be light to them? Yes. So here's the good news. God says, I will be with you and I'll stir up your heart to do it. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? I mean, that's the good news. That's the gospel. Our hearts, our hearts, guys, are, are longing to hear good news. I mean, we get excited about good news of stuff that we don't even care about because we just want good news. Here's the good news. People in this room are so broken and so hurt, and God's calling you to reach them. And he says, I'll be with you, and I'll stir your heart. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that while we were still sinners, he died for us. We thank you, God, that while we were Far away, you began to, to seek us and, and to, to look for us and to begin to call us back to you. We thank you, God, that you love us so much. We thank you that your love is greater than anything that we've ever done. Uh, God, there's, there's some in this room that have, that have dark, dark secrets. Lord, you want to forgive those. There's others, Lord, that just feel like we just keep slipping up on silly stuff over and over and over. Lord, you want to forgive that. Lord, there's some of us that are uh, just broken and hurt because of the offenses and the sins of others, and you want to heal us and restore us. Lord, there's, there's a myriad of ways that you want to reach us and touch us today. So we thank you for that. And Lord, we just receive what we've heard from, from the beginning of the service, that we're your children. And God, if there be people in here that don't have a relationship with you, Lord, people here that are maybe, maybe used to. My experience is the most, most of the people that I know that are disconnected at some point were connected. At some point were a part of a church or part of a youth group or they remember Sunday school and somehow they've gotten away. Somehow their heart's been so broken that they haven't come back to you. Lord, there's others that just simply weren't brought up in a Christian home. They just, they just didn't know. Whoever it is, Lord, whoever it is that feels far from you, I pray that you speak to their hearts today. Stir their hearts, God, to love you and to know you, to want you, to serve you. We thank you, God. Lord, we thank you that any good thing that we ever desire to do comes from you. It's your work in us. We're so thankful for that. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.